Thank you, Jesus. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that this is probably one of the best weeks of the whole year to tell somebody about Jesus. It's probably one of the best weeks of the whole year because you know what? You just can't avoid, people know what time of the year it is. And I think anybody that's, that's got a, an IQ over three has figured out that it's not about a bunny. You know, they may like the bunny, but it's not about a bunny. And uh, I could sit here and give you some history on how all those things came about, but uh, I'd rather get in the Word. But I, I do want to tell you real quick, um, I encourage you, and there's, there's a couple reasons I'll give you for this. I encourage you to tell people happy resurrection. The reason for that is, number one, we kind of know where Easter comes from. We know the word Easter actually comes from a pagan goddess. And, and you know, we really don't want to celebrate that. The Babylonians called her Ishtar. The Greeks called her Artemis. The Romans called her Diana. The... Uh, Celtic, the Celtic people called her Easter, just like that. So this is a name we don't really want to give to a holiday that celebrates Jesus rising from the dead, right? I mean, this is, this is kind of, you know, the world has done enough to try to take away his, his days and his glory out of his holidays. And so we're going to keep it back. But let me tell you that the ultimate reason I think it's best not that, you know what, if somebody doesn't know what you're talking about, tell them you're talking about Easter. That's okay. The, I mean, your ears will not burn. I mean, there, there's nothing traumatic that's going to happen. But you know what I always do? I always say happy resurrection. Usually they figure it out. And if they don't, let me ask you a question. When I say Easter, what pops into your mind? All sorts of stuff, right? Some of you see Jesus. Some of you see a bunny. Some of you see eggs. But when I say resurrection, what do you see? There's nothing else you see besides somebody getting out of the grave, right? When I say happy resurrection, you're not seeing a bunch of things. You are seeing one thing, and that's Jesus getting out of that grave. And so when you say to somebody, happy resurrection, you're putting the emphasis right back where it belongs. It's not about a school holiday. It's not about a stupid bunny. It is about Jesus taking our sin and defeating death once and for all. This is the day we celebrate his victory. And so, uh, you know, I encourage you if, you, if you have to, if you have to communicate with somebody and they don't know what you're talking about, you can do what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus told his disciples when, they, when he said, and he did the same thing that the apostles did later. When someone died and it was only temporary, he said they're asleep. He didn't say they were dead. He said they're asleep, right? He spoke at, at things that were not as though they were. He spoke in faith. He saw the future. And so he said about Lazarus, Lazarus is sleeping, we're going to go wake him up. As disciples said, well, if he's sleeping, won't he just wake up on his own? Or won't he just wake up on his own? And Jesus said, okay, I'll tell you plainly, he's dead. So every now and then, even though Jesus didn't want to say he's dead, he had to kind of help them out. So there may be times where you say, happy resurrection, somebody gives you a weird look like, what? And you might say, you know, we just call Easter resurrection. And you know what? I think that your tongue will stay in your mouth and, and, and there won't be any, you know, asteroids hitting the earth if you, if you say that. I'm just encouraging you to change, change the conversation, change the dialogue. The reason, uh, the reason they, they call uh, this time of year Easter is because the pagans believed 
that, uh, well, there was a lot, of, a lot of beliefs surrounding this. First of all, they believed that uh, the world had been destroyed in a flood. They kind of had the flood story messed up. And uh, the Babylonians taught that uh, the gods were angry because they couldn't get any sleep because while one group w- was awake, the other group was sleeping. While the other group was sleeping, the other group was awake. So the gods never got any sleep, so they wiped them all out with a flood. And then, and then they said, oops, we, we, we made a mistake. Now nobody can sacrifice to us. And we're very hungry. And so then uh, supposedly they sent Ishtar down in a giant egg. And uh, when the egg hatched, she gave birth to humanity. So there's a, a weird story there. And we want nothing to do with it. The reason it's celebrated in spring was that there was another legend that actually goes all the way back to Nimrod, if you can believe it. But it was an old legend uh, about... It was a twisting of the resurrection story. But it was, it was an old legend about, um, uh, about this goddess and her son and her son that, that uh, was killed. But then he, he got up and, and was resurrected and all these things. They believed that Nimrod, and Nimrod was worshipped as a god. They believed that he was resurrected, that there was, there was power there, and that this all happened in the spring. And so all of these stories and legends got kind of twisted together. And so springtime became known as Easter. And that was... So that's, it's only in our English language that we call it that. If you go to any other language, they call it Passover or they call it resurrection. It's only us English um, that actually call it Easter. It's the craziest name for a holiday talking about Jesus rising from the dead. Uh, but anyways, let's, let's take the holiday back. And, uh, you know, I, I don't believe you ever take a holiday back by uh, holding up a bunch of signs and protesting the wrong way to celebrate. I believe you take a holiday back by showing people what it's really about. And uh, so you don't need to go around correcting everybody. You just need to shine a light. And uh, I encourage you, tell as many people this week as you can, happy resurrection. If they ask you what you're talking about, you've got an open door to say, I mean, you know what? You go around saying he is risen. I mean, why not? If they, if they say who's risen, you just tell them who's risen. You tell them Jesus is alive. Man, we can... What, what an awesome testimony to say Jesus is alive. Praise the Lord. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of uh, Philippians. Today is Palm Sunday. However, uh, we're, we're not going to talk about the triumphant entry today. We've talked about it. In fact, I think a couple of months ago we talked about the triumphant entry. Uh, last year we, we did a good study on it. So we've, we've covered it a few times already uh, this year, especially in the last couple of months. And so this morning, I'm not going to talk so much about the triumphal entry as I am about the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. Not everybody's here on a Wednesday night. And on a Wednesday night, that'd probably be the closest time to a Good Friday. But a lot of you, can, uh, some of you can only make it in on Sunday. And you kind of skip from the triumphant entry straight to resurrection. Well, I don't want to skip over the cross. Let's talk about what Jesus did and the great sacrifice he made. And we're going to also turn to Isaiah 53, and many of you know that, many of you can quote some of it, many of you would probably recognize it once we read it, but this is the prophecy that was given regarding the servant of God, in other words, Jesus, who would lay down his life for the many. Isaiah 53 is is one of the most powerful uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, not only because it foretold what Jesus would do, but because it totally changed and, and, and totally uh, flipped the paradigm of what the Messiah would look like. 
We've talked about, we talked about some of this at, at men's group a couple of, a few weeks ago. But it's a, it's a powerful thought to think that everybody thought when the Messiah would come that he would come and set up his kingdom and he'd rule with a rod of iron because we know he will do that. There is a kingdom to come and he will do that. But what they weren't expecting was a Messiah that would come and lay his life down, that, that the end of his time on this earth would end with a death temporarily and then a resurrection. What they didn't expect was that Jesus would hand himself over to his very enemies. What they didn't expect was that their king would allow himself to be murdered. But if they looked at the prophecies, they might have got that. There's so many things, we talked about this last week at men's group, but there's so many things that Jesus said. How many times did he say the Son of Man must be lifted up? It said, how many times did he say, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to die, but I'll be risen again? He said it so many times, but it says they didn't really get it till after he was risen. They didn't really understand it till after the resurrection. You'll remember the, the men on the road to Emmaus. There was two guys, and Jesus kind of disguises himself and joins them. And the Bible says that they were very sad. And he asked them, what's, what's the deal, guys? Why are you so sad? And when they said, haven't you heard the news? Don't you know what happened? And the reason they were so sad was because they had such high hopes for Jesus. And they felt that those hopes had been dashed. And Jesus, it says, began to open up the scriptures to them. And began to reveal himself in the scriptures. And as he quoted these prophecies, as he, re as he told them about the scriptures before, it says that their hearts were open, their eyes were open. And, and in fact, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke? Because all of a sudden, as he begins to show them, this has been foretold for a long time. Guys, you'll remember the first prophecy ever given about the Messiah was given right there in the Garden of Eden. When the Lord said to the serpent, and the serpent represented Satan, he turned to the serpent and he said that this woman, the seed of this woman, will crush your head and you will bruise its heel, but it's going to crush your head. That bruising was the stripes, the beatings, the suffering that Jesus took for us. But in the end, he crushed the head of death itself. He stole, the, he didn't just steal as in sneaky steal. He went and took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And, I, you know, it's wonderful to know that if Jesus took the keys of death, hell, and the grave, that you have that same, you have the same keys, you have the same access, that death, hell, and the grave have no power over you. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, We see a picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5, says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word grasped means forcibly taken. The King James says 
he did not regard it, think it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, it wasn't something he had to just, he felt like he had to forcibly take. He had equality with God. He had, the Bible says he, he had all the robes of deity and he laid those aside. So even though he, equality with God was no big deal to Jesus, that's who he was. He laid that aside. And it says here in verse 7, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. This word bondservant simply means a slave. Now, who was he a slave to? Well, he was, he, it was a, we sometimes look at slave the wrong way. And this means, uh, and as the New American Standard says, a bondservant, this means that he bound himself to serve and that they, he really gave himself no other option, that his will didn't matter. And he said this several times. It's not about my will. It's not about what I want. It's about what the Father wants. So he emptied himself. You got to think, this is the God of all creation. Jesus was there since the beginning. The book of Colossians says that everything that's been created was created through him, by him, and for him. Nothing exists without him. By him, all things were created, and through him, all things in the world hold together. So, I mean, Jesus had it made, but he emptied himself to become one of us. Not just one of us, but one of us that was bound to the will of God. Took the form of a bondservant. And it's amazing to think that the God of all heaven, the God of all creation, who lived outside of time, who didn't know sin, who didn't know sickness, who didn't know death, who knew only perfection, that that God came down and took skin. That God came down and started as a baby. There's nothing more humbling than starting as a baby. That's why the Pharisees balked at it. Nicodemus had a hard time when Jesus said, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You see, we use the word born again so much, it doesn't mean much to us anymore. We just think born again, and we think by that time we prayed a prayer. But think about what it meant to Nicodemus. It means you have to start over you got to be a baby again. This is a guy who teaches everybody else what God says. This is a guy who has respect in the religious community. And all of a sudden, Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. you got to start over. You think about the fact that God came as a baby, and God made a mess in his diaper. This is real. You don't think Jesus was just a baby that was potty trained the moment he was, you know, out of the womb? He did this for you. He, he took on the form of humanity. The book of Hebrews says he's a, he is qualified to be a high priest because he experienced everything you've ever had to experience. He experienced every temptation you'd had to be tempted with. He went through it so he understands it. The creator took the form of the created. And it says here, he became, he humbled himself by becoming being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a big thought. So let's look at what he did. He emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He took the form of a man. And he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is not a pretty way to die. 
for many reasons. First of all, it's, it's stinking painful. It's torture. But not only that, it's not just torture, it's humiliating. Because only the worst people die on a cross. Only the worst criminals are executed in this way. And yet Jesus took this for us. But watch what he did. He emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. He took the form of a man. He humbled himself, and he died for us. These are all big things. Because he did this all for us. We know that, right? But I want you to think, it says obedience brought him to the cross, right? It says obedience brought him to the cross. And yet... Once you read through the New Testament, you find out that obedience was the thing that called him to the cross, but love was the thing that took him there. You see, sometimes when we think about obedience, we think about just doing it because we have to do it. We think the whole point of obedience is doing something you don't want to do because someone else told you to do it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be obedience. It'd just be you doing what you want to do. So when we hear the word obedience, we often think, you know, I think of this. I think about obedience being when I had to take out the trash as a kid and I did it because I had to, but I didn't really want to. But when Jesus did this, he did it out of obedience, yes. But the scripture says that he loved us. He loved us. And that, that death on the cross was an ultimate expression of love. I want you to see what happened here, that Jesus not only obeyed the Father, but he did it willingly, and he desired to do it. In fact, the Bible says that he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him. Now look what it says in the next verse. So he died, he did all this, even death on the cross. Verse 9 says this. For this reason also God highly exalted him, that means to lift him up, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that that name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved. So he just, he's about to connect this thought. At the beginning, he connects it to you and he's about to connect it to you again. Look, he, look what he says. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice it doesn't say work for your salvation. It doesn't tell you here to, to earn your salvation. It says work it out. You can only work it out if you already have it in you, right? This is the salvation that's inside you. Now work it out. Let it become part of your action. With fear and trembling means take it seriously. This isn't a game. This is, this is it. This is life. The next verse says this, for it is God. You see, if you just re read that one verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it sounds like you've got salvation inside and you've got to figure out how to do it. And you've just got to try harder and you've got to work harder. But when you need to read the next verse, it says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the reason we read to this verse is I want, to, I want you to see those two words together. To will and to work. You know, we understand 
working for his good pleasure. We understand obedience sometimes means doing what you don't want to do. But watch what it says. When God is at work within you, you may hear the command at first and say, yes, Lord. But when God is at work within you, you're not just going to go through life doing what you don't want to do. If you let God work in you, you'll not just do what he tells you to do. You'll want to do it. It says both to will. Do you know what it means to will? That means that's your will too. That's your desire. Something happened in the garden. Do you know what happened in the garden? Jesus laid his will down. And he said, "Not." He said, "Lord, if, there, if Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done." When he said that, he embraced the will of God, and from that moment forward, his will and the Father's will were one. He didn't just say. He didn't go to the cross, going, "I don't want to do this. Dad's making me do this." Don't even smile at me, disciples. I'm doing this for you. You know, I saw what you did the other day. You didn't think anybody saw, but I saw. And I'm going to the cross for you. You should be going. But you know what? I have to go. And I'd like to say no, but the Father said yes. And if I disobey the Father, there's going to be trouble. So I'm going to the cross. No. The whole way to the cross. The whole way to the cross, he went willingly. The love of God was displayed in him. And even while he was on the cross, he didn't say, Father, I just wish, I just wish, Father, you could smack these punks. I just wish you could teach them a lesson. Do you know what? Just, just, Just make them all sick to their stomach right now, at least so they won't be laughing at me. No, instead he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In other words... Jesus' will matched perfectly with the Father's will. The Father's will was reconciliation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so even on the cross, Jesus displayed that heart of reconciliation. So you see, when our Lord went to the cross, he did do it out of obedience. But love took him there. Humility put him in the place to be used. Obedience gave him the command, but love was the thing that drove him to the cross. Because he had the same love for us that the Father had for us. Now, as his servants, we are to have the same attitude that was in Christ. Do you know what it means to empty yourself? I mean, really, what does that mean? To empty myself, I don't think means that I'm going to walk through the rest of my life just going around empty. But it means I empty myself of my own plans, my own predetermined will, and I allow myself to be filled with something else. His will, his purpose, his love. When Jesus emptied himself, he didn't just submit to the will of the Father. He let the will of the Father become his will. We have to know, this, the world will tell you, you know, the world's got a new image of Jesus. The image of Jesus changes whenever it's convenient. The latest convenient image of Jesus is that he was a social revolutionary who got murdered because he was just making too many people uncomfortable. 
They'll try to tell you that it was just that he, he tried to flip the tables and because he was a friend of the poor, he made the rich people nervous or because he made the government nervous. But I'm going to tell you, if you've read the Gospels, you know why he was killed. He was killed because he claimed that he was the Son of God. He was killed because he was the Messiah. He was not murdered because he had some new social revolution, you know, social platforms that would shake up the system. He was killed because he preached the kingdom and he preached that he was the only way into it. That's why he was killed. The Pharisees didn't get mad when he fed the poor. The Pharisees got mad when he raised Lazarus from the dead, proving once and for all he was who he said he was. The Pharisees got mad when he said he was equal with God. The Pharisees got mad when he claimed to be the way to the Father. They didn't get mad when he was just, you know, I mean, sure, they, they talked bad about him when he ate with sinners and, and things like that, but they didn't kill him for that. They killed him. Because he was the Messiah, and he claimed to be the Messiah. He not only claimed to be the Messiah, but he claimed to be the Son of God. So if that's the case, then we have to get rid of this other notion that Jesus was murdered, and that if people had been a little bit more accepting, he wouldn't have been murdered. That if, if people had understood him a little bit more, he wouldn't have had to die. I'm going to tell you, he came with the purpose to die. Now, that's not the only thing he accomplished. He spent three years teaching us what the kingdom looked like on this earth. And he died so that kingdom could be a reality. He died to put the, the one thing that stood between you and the glory of God was your own sin. And he died to put that to death. And he rose again to give you his nature, to unite your, yourself with him, to raise you up with him so that that kingdom in heaven could be a reality in you. So if that's the case, then we know that, he, that the, this couldn't have been avoided if people had just been a little bit more understanding. Jesus said this more than once. He said, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down. I want to read you something from Matthew. Was Jesus murdered? Yes, he was. But it wasn't without him allowing himself and laying down his life. Matthew 22. Or not 22, I'm sorry. Much later. I'm thinking of Luke. Matthew chapter 26. Verse 47 says, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him, in other words, Judas, gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. All right, that's, that's going to be obvious, right? That's obviously the Middle East where such, such a, a, a signal is a little bit more subtle than it would be here. <laughs> Here a guy comes up and kisses you, you know something's up, you know. 
This is not a covert action. <laughs> What's wrong with you, man? What's going on here? Are you setting me up? But here, this is, uh, this is a little bit sneakier. He says, the one I kiss sees him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you've come for. Remember that Jesus already said to Judas, Judas was at the table with them trying to play like he was the only one that knew what was going to happen. Jesus picks up a piece of bread, offers it to Judas, and they, they break it off. He says, the one I'm breaking bread with tonight is the one that's going to betray me. And he said to Judas, whatever you have to do, go ahead and do it quick. Can you imagine getting that order from Jesus when you know you're betraying him? To hear him say, just do it quick. Just get it done. That'd freak you out, huh? To know that he already knew. To know that he didn't try to stop you. Does that mean Jesus made Judas do what he did? No. Judas already did that. Judas already made up his mind. What Jesus is saying, quit playing around, quit pretending, just go do it. So he did. When he came back, Jesus says, do what you've come here to do. So this whole time, Jesus knows what Judas is about to do. He knows what he's about to do. They came, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. Verse 51, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Poor slave, come on, man. I didn't have a choice. I don't hate you. I just came because my master came. The Romans used to have... It's, it's likely that the slave also had, you know, it was a bit of a bodyguard, had some armor on. He might have had a helmet on. The Romans had a method where if you had a helmet on, uh, you know, there, there are different things you could do. If it was a weak little flimsy little helmet, which, you know, people like that might have had, might not have had the top of the line. But what they do is they, they take a, a direct chop down the middle, right down the seam would split that helmet in two. So the Romans later came up with, you know, the, the plume that they had on their head. That would prevent that from happening. So maybe Peter saw this in a movie once, or maybe not a movie. But he heard stories about this is what real soldiers do. And he, I don't know, maybe he's trying to do the, do the, the middle chop thing and, and split it in the seam, and his aim's just really bad. He cuts off an ear like, come on, man. That's, that's really not going to help anybody. Cutting off a guy's ear. Peter's, Peter's ready to fight for Jesus. He's not good at it, but he's ready. Because you know you can still swing a sword with an ear missing. So he, he misses, he cuts off his ear. It's got to be embarrassing, but Peter's ready to take a second swipe. It's okay. And Jesus says to him, put your sword in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Think about this. Jesus is saying, if I wanted to, I could ask Dad to send me 12 legions of angels. A full Roman legion, fully, fully forced, is 6,000 men. 72,000 angels. How many angels did it take to wipe out the Assyrian army in the Old Testament? Only one. And only
only takes one angel to wipe out a whole stinking army. But Jesus is like, I could have 72,000 of them. We could do this overkill. We could really make a show out of this. And he says, my father would say yes. That's the weirdest thing. That's the strangest thing to me is that, that, that this wasn't the father's will. And yet if Jesus had asked, he would have got it. He says, don't you think I could do that? But the next verse says this. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? The scriptures say it must happen this way. What scriptures were he, was he talking about? There were several. We're going to go to Isaiah 53 right now. We're going to see one of the main ones, which may not have been so popular. Because those that were hoping for a Messiah were hoping for a Rambo to set them free from the Romans. They were hoping for a, a king that would whip up on their oppressors. But Isaiah 53 paints a different picture because the problem was the, the real issue of humanity, the real problem was not the Romans, was not the Seleucids, was not anybody else. The real problem was our own sin. The real problem was that we were bound and enslaved to death itself because the wages of sin is death. Jesus did not come to set the Israelites free from an earthly oppressor. Jesus came to set us all free from a spiritual oppressor because your real issue is this time on earth is short and it's a very small sliver of your existence. But you are eternal beings. And when man sinned, he enslaved us all. Jesus came to undo the damage that had been done. Jesus came to undo the curse. Jesus came to take back the keys that Adam gave to Satan. Jesus came to set us free. Isaiah 53 verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. This chapter is speaking of a, primarily of a specific time in Jesus' life, which is the end of his life. But even the beginning in the first couple verses speaks of a tender shoot out of parched ground. That's a great way to describe the land that Jesus came out of. Jesus born in Bethlehem. And as the scripture says, Bethlehem Ephratah, too small to be considered among the clans of Judah. I mean, this, this is too small. Bethlehem's this little, little village. Yes, it's the city of David, but I mean, it's nothing to be, it's not Jerusalem. It's not a palace. And then here, Jesus spends most of his ministry in a place that's not sophisticated, that's not fancy, that's not where kings come to live. He spends most of his ministry in the rural villages, in the poor areas. This is where he comes. So this is a parched ground. He, it says when he went to the land of the Naphtali, it says at the Naphtali and Zebulon, it says that, that he was fulfilling the prophecy that said, out of a land of great darkness shone a light. So he went to the place that was really dark, that was really parched, and the shoot rose up. It says there was nothing stately or 
majesty about him that we should be attracted to him. Verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Is this all of his life? Because it sure doesn't look like this was the kind of Jesus we got to know through the Gospels. The Jesus we knew through the Gospels, the Bible says, was anointed with the oil of gladness above all his brethren. He was happier and more glad than anyone else around him. When was he acquainted with this great grief? When did he become the man of sorrows? Was when he bore your sin, when he bore your shame, when he bore your grief. This was the moment of great sorrow. You know, sometimes we watch movies like The Passion of the Christ or you read the stories about how Jesus was beaten brutally and whipped and tortured. And you think that was the worst he had to go through. But we know that was nothing. That physical suffering had nothing on what he had to face within him. You got to think, it was never a moment in history, even before time began, where he was separated from the Father. They were one. His time on earth, he talked with them all the time. He felt his presence all the time. He was able to say things like, I don't do anything that the Father doesn't, that I don't see him do. I don't say anything that I don't hear him say. Who can say that unless they have a close, very tight relationship with the Father? I mean, you think about it. If you say all I ever say is what I hear him say, you must be hearing him a lot. Either that or you go through life not talking. Jesus was closer to the Father than we've ever been to anybody in our life. And he was perfect. He never knew sin. He beat it every time. Do you remember? You might not. But you may remember the first time you really really realized you did something bad. Or maybe it was, maybe you remember that, that part place in childhood where you knew it was wrong and you did it anyways and you felt that great grief inside, that shame for what you'd done. Or maybe it was a next level. You'd already done bad things, but you did something that was even worse. And do you remember that feeling on the inside of you the first time you did it? How terrible it felt? Think about Jesus who had never sinned. And he's not just feeling the shame and the guilt of one, but of every sin that's ever been committed or ever will be committed. The Bible tells us that when this happened, the father was forced to look away. The father and Jesus were separated for the first time in history. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As bad as the whippings were, as bad as the beatings were, as bad as the beard being plucked out was, as bad as the cross was, there is nothing like the anguish he felt being separated from the only father he never knew and loved. That is the most terrible thing he had to go through. It says here, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Obviously, this is not talking about the majority of Jesus' ministry. This is talking about a very specific point in time. 
It's implied that when he was on that cross, both because of the physical things they did to him and because of what was going on on the inside of him, that if you were to look at Jesus, you wouldn't even recognize him. I mean, think about it. Not only has he been beaten savagely, he had his whole beard plucked out. And he was a Jewish man with a, with a significant beard, I imagine. Plucked out. Beaten. But not only that, I can imagine his whole countenance changed when that anguish on the inside showed itself in his face. They'd never seen Jesus without the blessing of the Father. They'd never seen Jesus without the light of the Father. They'd never seen Jesus as a sinful man. And yet, Isaiah says, we looked away from him. We couldn't even look at him. Surely, our griefs he himself bore. Now, I want to remind you, this was spoken hundreds of years before Jesus would come along. But Isaiah is being shown by the Father what will happen. Surely, I want you to notice, if you, are, if you like to write in your Bible, you need to circle that word or highlight it, because look what it says. It says, surely, which means there's no doubt, there's no way out of it, surely our griefs he himself bore. And we know if he bore our griefs, you've got no business carrying them around anymore. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, we thought it was his fault. We thought, we looked at him and we said, you must have done something to make God angry. You must have deserved this. We looked at him and we esteemed him stricken. That means that God wound back and smacked him. It means we thought he was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We looked at him as somebody that deserved what he got. But it says here, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused, hear that, the Lord has caused. See, men could put Jesus on a tree. Men could whip him. But there was no man on the planet that could cause the sins of the world to fall on Jesus. Pharisees couldn't do it. The Romans couldn't do it. This was something that the Lord did because he loved you. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all. That's past, present, and future. The iniquity of us all. Isn't it an amazing thing to know that there will be people in history that don't receive Jesus and won't receive his free gift of salvation, and yet their sins have been paid. And because they refuse him, they won't get the benefit of that. Because they reject him, they won't understand what it's like to be forgiven. Because they reject him, they still bear the punishment of their sins. But it didn't matter. Jesus bore the sins of us all. 
The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, and you better believe that was a heavy weight. In verse 7, it says, he, is, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to sorrow, slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Now remember, it says that Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a big thought. Here it says that he did not open his mouth. Why? If he had opened his mouth, guys, there would have been different things happen. If he had opened his mouth, he said, if I open my mouth, angels will come and rescue me. We've talked about this. I remember David McGrew came and gave a great message on the meekness of Christ. And we discovered what meekness really was. See, the world tells you that meekness and gentleness are, are, are fruits of weakness. That's somebody that just can't stand up for themselves. But if you look that word up in the, for instance, the vines and many other uh, expository dictionaries, they tell you this, that meekness is a fruit of strength. Meekness is strength restrained. In men's meeting, we gave this example. You know, my little son, he's, he's only one years old. He's not a He's not a big kid. He's probably big for his age, but he's not big compared to me. And every now and then, Moses will get playful and he'll get rough. And he'll, he'll want to he'll play and he'll, he'll kind of whack me like, let's play. You know, I'm big enough and strong enough. Now, I may not be strong relative to like, you know, a, a champion wrestler. But compared to my one-year-old, yeah, I'm strong. And my little boy smacks me light, like playfully and lightly. I don't, I don't lose control and go, that's it. You've done this for the last time. I'm big enough and strong enough that I don't have to react to him in a, in a violent way. Why? Because it didn't hurt. I'm so strong compared to him. It's a wonderful feeling. I'm so strong compared to him that he can hit me as hard as he can and I won't get angry at him. You see, the stronger you are, the less you have to react to somebody else. And when Jesus showed that great strength, if he wanted to, he could open his mouth and have 72,000 angels lift their pinky and wipe Judea off the planet. But he shuts his mouth. He did not open his mouth. They had him at one point blindfolded. This is before he went on trial. He's in the courtyard. You see, they had an illegal trial at the high priest's house in the middle of the night. You don't have trials in the middle of the night for, you, you, for someone you know is, is guilty and, and can be proven guilty. This was an illegal trial. It was the only way they were going to nail him. So they had a trial for him in the middle of the night. And while he's in the courtyard, they have him blindfolded. And the soldiers are taking turns beating him. And they're saying to him, hey, you're a prophet. Prophesy, who hit you? And he did not open his mouth. Herod says, won't you just defend yourself here? Won't you stand up for yourself? And he did not open his mouth. The only thing he said was when Herod said, they say you're the king. They say, you're, you know, this, is this true? And Jesus says, you said it with your own mouth. I didn't say it, you said it. 
That's the only thing he says. The greatest preacher on the planet could have been the greatest lawyer on the planet didn't open his mouth. Why? Because nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Because it wasn't just obedience that took him to the cross. He said, he laid down his will and took up the Father's will. It was not just I have to do this. It became I want to do this. God was at work both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And as Jesus went to the cross, he wanted to do this for you. So he did not open his mouth. By Verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Who deserved to be hit? Who deserved to die? It wasn't him with my people but he did it for us his grave was assigned with wicked men yet he was with the rich men in his death that's prophesying that the rich merchant Joseph of Arimathea would give him his tomb and lay him in his tomb so even that was in the prophecy because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth but the Lord was pleased to crush him that's a hard verse. The Lord was pleased. It doesn't mean pleased like the Lord had a smile on his face. It doesn't mean pleased that he was giggling. It means pleased that it was his complete will to do this. Do you know why? You got to think. There's only one thing that would cause the Lord to be pleased with the crushing of his own son. And that is such immense and great and overwhelming love for you. It's only that much love that could ever say, that could, that could ever make it the will of God to crush his own son. It was his pleasure to crush him because he loved you that much. Because the thought of you being crushed eternally was beyond acceptance. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Who will see it and be satisfied? The Lord. God looked down at Jesus and saw the anguish that he took, and, and, and in that, took it as an offering for all the anguish you should have felt, all the guilt you should have felt, all the shame you should have felt, Jesus felt for you. He dealt with for you. And the Lord looked at it and was satisfied. Do you know what satisfied means? Satisfied to us means kind of like, ha ha, I'm satisfied. But in this term, it means the punishment was paid. The debt was fully repaid. Satisfied means there was nothing left to do. It was fully done. The Lord looked on what Jesus did and was completely satisfied, which means he considered the debt paid. There was nothing left. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He will justify the many. I'm one of those many. 
who's now justified before God. Do you know what justify means? That means you are considered just. You are considered righteous. You are considered not guilty. You are considered as clean as you could ever get. You can't get cleaner than that. Justified the many. An old children's church saying was that we would remember what justified meant by saying justified never sinned. It's justified never sinned. That's how we remembered what justified meant. It says this, because therefore... I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What a wonderful thought. You know what the next verse says? Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child, Break forth in this joyful shouting and cry aloud, you have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your descendants will possess nations and will re settle the desolate cities fear not for you will not be put to shame do not feel humiliated for you will not be disgraced but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more for your husband is your maker whose name is the lord of hosts and your redeemer is the holy one of israel and who has called you the god of all the earth that's a big, huge thing. It stops by saying he was numbered amongst the transgressors. He was counted as a sinner, but he bore our sin and our transgressions. And then the next verse says, well, then shout for joy, O barren one. This is big. But you got to realize when Jesus did this, we read this and we realize that, that, that people looked at him and said, you deserved it, you earned it, but he did it for us. And it was his good pleasure to do this for you. Philippians 2 says, have this attitude which was in Christ. That you empty yourself. You humble yourself. You become obedient. And here's what happens. God exalts you. He gives you a name above every name. He gives you his name instead of your own. I read this Isaiah 53 and I realize there was none of this that Jesus deserved. And yet you must remember, no one took his life. Nobody took Jesus' life. He did it because he loved you. Everything we're ever going to do in life, everything good we're ever going to do in life, it may start with obedience, but it's going to be done through love. Jesus' love for you is so strong that he restrained himself when he could have reacted. He bore what he didn't have to bear. He was counted amongst transgressors when he wasn't one. You know, it's one thing to suffer for doing right. It's one thing to be punished when everybody knows you shouldn't have been punished. It's another thing when the scripture says we looked at him and we figured he deserved it. You got to think how hard that'd be bearing such a punishment and having everybody think that's what you deserve. Yet he did that for you. What a thought. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down freely. And just to prove the point, 
you read it in the book of John, when the, when the soldiers came up and said, we're looking for Jesus, we're looking for this guy, he said, I am he. Literally, he said, I am. And when he said that, all the soldiers got knocked to the ground. What an experience that might have been. Just to prove, just to prove this. Not, not, number one, the great I am, even saying his name, is powerful. But, but really, beyond that, if I wanted to, I'd knock you all down. Every time you get up, I'd just knock you right back down on your caboose. This would be, we could do this all night. But instead, he showed them, you're not taking my life. I'm laying it down. I'm keeping my mouth shut because I love you so much. I want us to remember this week as we come up to the wonderful time of resurrection that though we look at, though the world looked at Jesus and said, you must be stricken by God, you must be afflicted, that we look at him and say, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. First Peter, two, first Peter says, by his wounds we were healed. By his stripes we were healed. Because it's now in the past tense. It's a powerful thought. Jesus did this for you. I want you to have the same attitude that was in Jesus. Recognize this. Jesus did not go to the cross against his will. His love for you was so great that he'd do it again if he had to do it. But he never will because one sacrifice has sufficed for all. I have that same thought every time I ever feel like I'm about to do something I don't want to do. Every time I, I feel like God's saying you need to do this and I really don't have the heart in it, then I, I, I take some time to say this. God put that love in me that, that's in you. Because the Apostle Paul said the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It drives us. It pulls us. We do what we do because we love like Jesus loved you. You see, you need to first realize this for yourself. That's how much he loved me. Read that Isaiah 53. Read it in a different translation if it helps you. But read it through and say, that's how much he loved me. And then go and say, if he loved me that much, how much does he want to love through me? There's great strength in you. There is great power contained in that spirit that's inside of you. And that's activated through love. Faith works by love. Same love that kept his mouth shut. The same love that though he could have knocked those soldiers over, said, no, I am glad to go to the cross for you. The same love that refused to defend himself in court, that same love is in you. I guarantee once you empty yourself, he'll fill you with something else. Once we empty ourselves, you know, you might read that verse and just think that God wants you to go through life empty. But it's certainly not the case. When we empty ourselves, he fills us with him. When you humble yourself, it says it more than once in the scripture, he lifts you up. Thank God. Humility put Jesus in a place where he could be obedient.
Obedience took him to the point where he was willing to die, but love was what ultimately took him to the cross. And everything that God's ever going to tell you to do, he's also got the love there for you to do it. I know this. I've experienced this firsthand. I never wanted to be a pastor. I, I, I've told you this before, but I once met a, a fellow in Calgary who said, I have a problem. I said, well, what's your problem? He said, I feel like I'm called to be a pastor, but I can't be. And I said, why can't you be called to be a pastor? He said, because everybody I've ever met that was a pastor said they didn't want to be one, and I want to be one, so I can't be a pastor. <laughs> I said, no, you're just ahead of the rest of us. You just go ahead. <laughs> but I, it wasn't in my plans for life. And when my father went on to be with the Lord, there were plenty of people saying, you know, you believe the grace is on you to take over that church in Loon Lake. I believe you can do it. I said, well, I don't really want to. <laughs> and it wasn't that I didn't love the church. It's just I didn't feel like I wanted to be a pastor. I, just, I had other plans. I wanted to do these things. Many of you know on a flight back from Houston to Edmonton, I was on the plane. And I was, had my head against the window and I was ready to go to sleep. And as soon as I was about to shut my eyes, I instead saw a vision and I, I saw these people in Loon Lake, and I saw these people in the Philippines, and I saw these people in the Arctic, and I saw people here. And all of a sudden, I, when I saw these people, I felt like my heart was about to explode. I felt like my heart was being stretched and pulled. And I realized that from that moment, there was a love that I didn't have before. I had such a love in me. When I got off that plane, I had such a love for those people that I couldn't do anything but minister to them. Thank God. I think I would have said yes to God even if that hadn't happened because, you know, you just don't say no to God. It's not smart. But I'm thankful that when he calls you, he's able to give you the love for it. He's able to give you the desire for it. If you'll let him, it's God who's at work within you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Let's stand up tonight, this morning. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we're so thankful for you. Sacrifice Jesus for dying for us, bearing our shame and our guilt and our pain and our, our punishment and our sin and doing it willingly because your love for us was so great that it was your good pleasure to lay your life down. You said to your own disciples, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends, you said to them. I know you've said the same to us. Lord, we have nothing to say but thank you. We have nothing left to say but offer you our full gratitude. What could we ever say that would match your sacrifice? And yet, Lord, we are so aware that every day of our life we're going to attempt to do it, to give you thanks and praise, for we know we deserve that death. We deserve that punishment. We deserved the wages of our own actions, and yet we never have to see those wages again. Our grief, our sorrow, our shame, you bore. 
by your stripes, we were healed. We were set free. We were delivered. We were redeemed. We were bought back from death itself. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. What I'd love for you to be able to do right now is allow that gratitude to rise up in you, to consider what he did willingly for you. Nobody dragged Jesus to the cross. He, took, he walked on his own two feet. He went willingly and gladly for you. That same love that drove Jesus is in you. And we say, Lord, send us wherever you want us to go. Use us in ever, whatever way we need to be used because we want to see your glory in greater measure. We want to see your hand move in Lloydminster and all the surrounding region. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We lift you up. We praise you for we are so thankful. Thank you, Jesus.